All right, last round of psalms, the psalms of new orientation. God brings us through the, the angst of life in a fallen world, and joy breaks through again. So we are three categories, lots of genres of psalms, but we put them in three categories. First were the psalms of orientation, the world as God made it, the world as it is and ought to be. What, what it is like when it's not tainted and disrupted by sin and curse and what it will be in the world that is to come. And then we talked about the Psalms of disorientation. That's a common theme of the wisdom literature, that we see the world as it should be in God's word, in his promises, And then we see with our eyes the world as it actually is, what we experience, and that discontinuity is disorienting. That's what Job experienced, was the disorientation of this world. That's what Solomon experienced in Ecclesiastes. That's what the psalmists experience, and we call those the psalms of disorientation when they're talking out of that lament, out of that sorrow out of that pain, and sometimes out of that pain that leads to anger, which is what we talked about last week, imprecatory psalms. Now we talk about the third category of psalms, which are new orientation. These are psalms that point forward. They're, they're pointing forward in, in history and time in one way. They're about a day that will come, but they also have a very present purpose. God is pointing our vision forward to that day. Because if we will fix our vision on that day, that world, those promises, that reality, it will affect the way we live now for the race that was set before him. This idea of fixing your eyes on something off there in the distance. And even though your experience right now is not of that fully and perfectly, you can see it. It's, it's, It's right there. And so I'm running toward that. That is the race that we were on, uh, that we are on and and the race to which we're called is fixing our eyes and, and moving forward knowing that we don't have that perfectly right now, but knowing that that is so certain, it is so guaranteed and assuredly at the end of this path, it affects the way we go through the right now. And so that's what the Psalms of New Orientation are. They're both pointing forward in history, and in this moment in history, they're pointing God's people's thinking in the right direction in that direction. The phrase you'll hear me use a lot in sermons is looking up instead of down. When you look down, it's a totally different way of living. Those of you who, um, if you've done race car driving or if you've done mountain biking or even just being a good driver on 285, do you want to look at the car right in front of you? You want to look down the road. You want to see what's way up ahead of you. That gives you more confidence in your driving. It, it, it produces better outcomes. The same thing is true in mountain biking. The same thing is true in racing. The same thing is true with your circumstances. You don't have to look terribly carefully at a trial to know that it's a difficult and painful trial. 
You don't really have a choice there. The question is, in the midst of that trial, will you also choose to look up and experience not just that trial, but the hope that God, will per- that God has purposed the trial and is persevering us through the trial? It's, it's looking up instead of looking down. And that's what these Psalms of New Orientation are. They're a call to look up, so to speak. All right, first category are... We're taking from me. So these are new orientation. And the first genre of these are Thanksgiving Psalms. What do Thanksgiving Psalms do? Yes. They express gratitude for what God has done. Many of the Thanksgiving Psalms are specific and direct responses to a lament. I had this trial. I called out to God for this specific help. God heard me and answered me. I am grateful for that. Many of the Thanksgiving Psalms are sort of the other side of a time of trial, the other side of a lament. Uh, Nick, turn to Psalm 18. Noah, turn to Psalm 30. John, turn to Psalm 34. Should we have a general sense of thanksgiving and gratitude toward God? Yes, absolutely. Do you know the best way to cultivate a generic sense of thanksgiving and gratitude toward God? A long list of specific things for which you are grateful and thankful. The, the, the specificity, so I've encouraged, I'm not a journal keeper, but I try to encourage people, keep a prayer journal, what you prayed for, and go back and mark when God answered. Because there are going to be times where you're like the psalmist calling out a lament that your prayers bounce off the ceiling and God doesn't hear you. And you're going to be able to go back and look at this physical list of all the times where very clearly God heard you. And he acted. Sometimes he acted in the ways that you wanted. Sometimes he acted in ways that were better than what you wanted. Sometimes he acted in ways that were, that were harder than what you wanted, but bore good fruit. And so keeping that list of specific acts of God can be a very helpful example. Psalm 18, 3 through 6. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Just at the word level, that has a lot in common with lament psalms, doesn't it? (laughs) That's a tough situation. The cords of death encompassed me. Enemies who were a threat to his life, the torrent of destruction, the cords of shale, the snares of death, distress, all the language of distress is there, except this is on the other side of that distress. This is the, the, I called out to God. Maybe this is the same person who was also writing, how long, O Lord, I've called out to you 10 million times and you haven't heard me. And you call out 10 million and one and God does hear you and he acts and this 
the psalmist here is looking backward. This is David looking backward and says, yes, he heard it. My cry reached his ears and the Lord saved me from my enemies. And therefore the Lord is worthy to be praised. Very specific remembrance on David's part. Psalm 30, one through three. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Same thing. Lots of language similar with a lament. This is a very real, very specific circumstance that David has in mind. The sickness that was leading him to death and his foes are triumphing. You think you're so good. You think you're walking with God. You think you matter to God. And look, you're just going to get sick and die. And David calls out, Lord, help me. And the Lord healed him. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This time, what's the deliverance from? Just fear. Fear is a very real thing. In the midst of our fears, in the midst of our anxieties, our worries, David calls out to God, relieve me of this. Sometimes that's relief from the fearsome circumstances. But you know what you really want God to take away? He can leave the circumstances just as they are and still take away the fear. Put my trust in you. Make you Make yourself real to me in such a way that I'm not filled with anxiety, even if nothing changes, even if I don't get the answer, even if I don't see the future I'm looking for, even if nothing is any more certain tomorrow than it is today, take away the fear. Ground my trust in you. And David had prayed something to that effect. And do you know what God did? He delivered him from his fear. Pretty amazing. And so David comes back and writes a psalm of praise to God a psalm of thanksgiving, because God hears his people. And so it's this, it's this dialogue. This is the scriptural language of pray without ceasing. The Christian life should be an ongoing dialogue with God. We call out to God, God responds, we respond back. We call out to God, God responds, we respond back. Sometimes God responds with no. Sometimes God responds with painful things. And we respond back with hurt things, hurt feelings, confusion, disorientation. But these Psalms are when God has responded with clear deliverance. And how does the delivered respond to the deliverer? Thanksgiving. If you don't know this already, gratitude will transform your life if you want it to. Gratitude, in my opinion, for the Christian, is the most concrete thing you can work on that will transform your daily experience of life. You could go through the Ten Commandments. This would be a great exercise. And you think of ways that you break each of those commandments. And you could ask yourself, how would a grateful heart help me overcome that sin? That's, you'll find some answers there. <laughs> Gratitude is one of the most, I don't want to say it's easy, 
It's doable by the Spirit. But in terms of understandable, what is something concrete? What is something very practical that I can work on that will change my life and make me more like Jesus? Cultivate gratitude. It will affect how you feel about yourself. Therefore, it will affect how you treat others because those two are inextricably connected. How you feel about yourself and God determines how you treat others. So if you start with gratitude there, this is for people, um, you know, some of you seem more wired to be people people. You kind of like people more naturally. And that's, I'm proud of you. Uh, (laughs) Some of us are not so wired, and this isn't an excuse. It, It doesn't let me off the hook for it. But loving people is hard. <laughs> uh, but it wouldn't be so hard if they weren't so annoying. Yes! <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> and and what, what can actually make you a lover of people? The Spirit of God. Remember, that's the layer above all of this. I'm now talking a layer down. Gratitude. A heart that is filled with thanksgiving. In that specific example, what what comes to mind? Why would me being grateful for something make me love annoying people? While we were sinners, yet Christ died for us. So we're also called to love the unlovable, right? Because anybody can love those that are easy for us to get along with. And I am so glad that works for some people, (laughs) right? And it's an important... It's an important theological truth. That's right. And you have to pray about it. It's not like you have people in your life that you would just assume fell off the cliff. (laughs) I'm glad to hear people people say that. (laughs) I thought it was just the rest of us. No, you're you're absolutely right, Pam. it's It's a calling. It's a responsibility. And the way that we can joyfully enter into that calling and responsibility is in part when we have some sense of, It's not like God looked at me and said the way Kathy or I would say about one of you, that's a really annoying person. God looked at us and said, that is a rebel against my throne. That is a person who has endeavored to break the bonds of my lordship. That is a person who every day called me not God when I am God. That is a person who said, I do not run the world well. That is a person who put my son on a cross. And while we were sinners, yet Christ died for us. And if that can't get you to a place of thanksgiving, not not instantly transforming your behavior, but but a theological truth that you go back to over and over and over again, and you say, why would I make the effort to love hard people? I don't know. Because God made the effort to love and to save terrible people, not in the abstract, but this terrible person. Uh, gratitude is transformative. And, and so the specificity of these psalms, using the same language. Have you ever done that? I, I've not done it very much, so I'm not chastising you as much as making a suggestion here. But have you ever thought about, especially those of you who keep a prayer journal of some kind could do this, like you pray to God with specific language in the petition. Have you ever thought about revisiting that language and weaving it into the thanksgiving or the gratitude? That's what these psalms are. There's the lament, and then I'm going to take exactly the same language. Here is where I was. Here is what I did. Lord, I'm the same guy who prayed Psalm 88. (laughs) 
Everything is dark. Everything is bleak. Nothing will ever be good again, and you are the problem. And let me take exactly that same language and say, even when I could not utter one word of hope, yet you heard me. Even when my prayer lacked one breath of praise and thanksgiving, yet you heard my cry. And here's what you did. Uh, Absolutely transformative what this can do. A great example, we're going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read it in chunks because it's long. But turn to 107. So my, my pedagogical purpose, my teaching purpose today, lots of things I want to show you about these types of songs. But my pastoral purpose is very much to encourage you toward a life of specific thanksgiving. Speak with gratitude specifically for specific things in your prayers, in your conversations, at your dinner table, to yourself when you're in the car or the shower. Think gratitude. <laughs> Not play pretend and everything is great. And that, No, I didn't say everything was great. I said, do you have things for which you ought to be grateful? That's two different questions. And if you will fill your life with specific reminders of causes for gratitude toward God, it will transform everything else. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why? Where does our gratitude begin and end when it comes to God? His goodness, I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't seem like he's very good. How do I know he's good? For his steadfast love endures forever. His hesed, his covenant faithfulness. We think of love as, when we think about God's goodness and God's love, we think about it in a definition that is, uh, you, when you love someone, you only do the things that they like. We know that's not what love is, right? That's not the way we love our children. That's not the way we love our friends. That's not the way we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not a meaningful definition of love, is that love only does things that the other person likes. Can we all agree with that? God is good because of his steadfast love, which endures forever. God will be true to his covenant. You follow that unbroken chain in Romans of those that God foreknew, those he predestined before the beginning of the world, and you follow that chain all the way through to glorification in Christ. That is God's, let's call it a decision that's not theologically the most precise term, ordained, uh, predestined, foreknew, those words. God's decision to save. Your actual, full, complete glorification in Christ. It is an unbroken line. What does life feel like from here to there? That's what it feels like. That's our experience. But do you know why we should be grateful to God? Because this is feelings based on circumstances. This is faith the assurance of things hoped for. It is unbroken. It is, it is secure. It is permanent. It is his steadfast love that endures forever. 
Full stop. No doubts. No questions. No insecurities. No fear. No takebacks. Endures forever. That's why we should give thanks to the Lord. That's where it begins and ends. There's a bunch of things in the middle that we should be grateful for. But those are the huge mountain peaks of our gratitude. So then, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say what? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Are you not the redeemed of God? Say so. Say that his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord with your actual thoughts and words. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, east and the west, north and the south. Some wandered in desert ways, finding no way a city to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul faded within them. You ever feel you don't belong anywhere? You're, you're, you're on, you're on a, a vehicle that has no destination. It's not getting anywhere. You wouldn't know where to go. You could turn this way or that, but who cares? There's no no specific destination in mind. There's no vision of, of, of settledness, of home, that any one of these turns will be right. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. You can spend the rest of this Lord's Day meditating on those eight verses. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't exhaust them. You take every one of these verses and you just, ex- I mean, what you're, in general, it doesn't matter. Take these verses and, and, and look at your life through the lens of them. It's such an honest what the Christian life is. There's trouble here. There's suffering, there's hardship, there's lots of, but there's also the steadfast love that endures forever and the assurance that the Lord leads them on a straight path to security and satisfaction and finally brings them home. I mean, that's the the great hymns. So many of the great hymns in our hymnal. We talked about the marks of a great hymn a few weeks ago or a great song. And one of them, it it has to have a progression. It has to build and lead us somewhere. And so many of the great hymns have some verse about leading us where? Home. Finally lead me home. And my dwelling place will be with God. That's what we all want. We just want to go home. We don't want to be here like this. We want to be there. And we have this absolute assurance that God is taking us on what is for him a straight line path there. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. He satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's letting the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's what verses 8 And nine are. They're the redeemed of the Lord saying, God is good. Ten, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the word of God. Ah, this isn't physical chains. This is spiritual chains, spiritual irons in which they are bound. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Who is this? Hard labor. 
Ah, yes, God's people in Egypt. All the world had done this. All the world had rebelled against God. All the world's in spiritual chain. And the world's suffering under the, the, the curse of God from Adam and Eve's rebellion. And they're in these spiritual chains. And then what did they do in Egypt? They cried out to God for help. And scripture tells us all over the place that God heard the cries of his people. He delivered them from their distress. The Exodus is a real physical, tangible, historical event that has always pointed to a real spiritual event and reality that God is the deliverer of a people who walked in darkness and were under the weight of condemnation of their rejection of God and God freed them from it. He brought them out of the darkness of the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. This is such a great connection. Psalm 2 which is the sermon today, is a kingship psalm. What are the rulers of the earth and the kings of the earth, what do they say they're going to do at the beginning? They're going to burst the bonds apart. I will free myself because God is the real slave master here. And what happens to people who free themselves from the lordship of God? Slavery, bondage, and death until God comes and saves them. Every not God we ever go to for freedom leaves us in chains. Every not God will leave you in chains. They cried out to the Lord in trouble and he delivered them in their distress. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast loves, for his wondrous works to the children of man. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. What are the sacrifices that God eternally desires from his people. Thanksgiving. They're not sacrifices at all in that sense. (laughs) They are psalms, hymns, praises of thanksgiving. Some went down on the sea to ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. Praise him in the assemblies of elders. Not just private praise, public praise. Not just private expressions of gratitude in your prayer closet. Everybody around you ought to know that you are grateful to God. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land and a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in it. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours out contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright sees it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. 
Whoever's wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalms of Thanksgiving. Any questions? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's simple. It's true. It's straightforward. It's direct. You're not going to win a logical argument against Psalms of Thanksgiving. (laughs) You can make an emotional appeal. Yeah, but look at all these things I don't want to be thankful for. Look at all these things that don't feel good. Look how bad this stuff hurts. I I hear you, but I got to go back to is not the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever? And by the way, I can add 10 million other things to your list of things you should be grateful for, but even if I couldn't. And when we're comforting people, you shouldn't in the first few conversations. (laughs) But you focus here. There's a, we were not wandering toward home, you guys. We were wandering toward death. And you either do that in obliviousness, or if God has given you any self-awareness whatsoever, you do it in despair because you realize there, there's, no, there's nowhere to go. It doesn't matter which direction I turn. Who cares where I end up? And into that, the Lord comes and leads us in a straight path, a straight road to home to a final destination, to everything that we always wanted and were too afraid to even admit could exist. And if it did exist, we didn't deserve there to be there anyway. And God says, no, 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 I did this. I did this. Questions about Psalms of Thanksgiving. All right, Psalms of Remembrance. These are salvation history psalms or redemptive historical psalms. Uh, turn to 135. So these are, these will express Thanksgiving, but these are very specifically focused on the major covenantal events. So if this was our timeline of history from eternity past to eternity future, and we're thinking about what God has done in his covenant faithfulness, There's the 10 billion things that we experience in life that are on that timeline. But there's also some really significant covenantal events in this timeline. There's creation. There's, I mentioned the Exodus. There's the Davidic throne. Right? And we know beyond that, there's John the Baptist and there's Christ and there's the crucifixion, and there's the resurrection, and there's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and there's all these redemptive historical landmarks. But when these were written, you know, we're here. Ex- well, you could put exile as <laughs> a significant one. We're here. And so these Psalms of Remembrance focus on those major covenantal events in redemptive history. Psalms of Remembrance have two purposes. One is the main thanksgiving, reminding people and thanking and praising God for what he's done. But the Psalms of Remembrance were also a teaching tool. This was the way that you could teach and help others memorize the history of God's working with his people. Um, So, for example, Psalm 136, we'll read 135 in a minute, but 136 
is about God's steadfast love, just like Psalm 107 was that we just read. Except 136 looks at all of these, looks the stages of redemptive history through that lens of steadfast love. Here's how these markers fit into God's working in history to save His people in salvation history. Uh, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. These are all psalms of remembrance. But the example we'll look at is 135. So it says, "Praise the Lord! Praise the name of the Lord! Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant." All right. So we're in that category of thanksgiving. We're going to praise and be grateful to God for something that He's done. Now is when it becomes a psalm of remembrance, and we see specifically what are we praising him for. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself; Israel is His own possession. So we're going to go back here to the Abrahamic covenant, and we're going to invoke the name of Jacob, and we're going to connect that with Israel. Those are all going to become synonymous at this point, but but that's the specific. The Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself. For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the cloud rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth wind from the storehouses. God does whatever He wants. Did He need? Did He have to? Was He required to make a covenant with Abraham? No, He wasn't required to make a covenant with anybody. He did not have to. He does as he pleases. Is the point of that language? God is not constrained by any events of human history, and yet that God who does whatever he pleases, what was he pleased to do? Verse eight. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaohs and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. So first we had Egypt, right? Which is this Exodus. God did this, revealed Himself to the Egyptians,、uh, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh rebelled. Pharaoh persecuted God's people. Pharaoh said, "I'll have nothing to do with this God. I'm bigger than God." So what did God do? Struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For what? For the sake of his covenant, he did it for the sake of his covenant. The God who does as he pleases struck down the firstborn of Egypt for the sake of a covenant he didn't even have to make. He does what he pleases, and he does mighty works for the sake of his covenant. Verse ten: struck down many nations, killed mighty kings, the Amorites, Bashan, Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Oh, how important is the land in the Old Testament? Did God have to give them a land? No. You know what they deserved? To wander in that desert until all of them perished, and they stopped being. But what did He do? He led them out of that wilderness, and He gave them a land. How did He get the land? Well, He overthrew lots of mighty kings and took their territories. Why? For the sake of His covenant that He didn't even have to make, because God does as He pleases. Your name, O Lord, verse thirteen, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. The idols of the nations have they ever done this? Did the idols ever make a covenant? 
Did the idols ever free their people from bondage in Egypt? Did the idols ever feed them in the wilderness? Did the idols ever lead them into the land of promise? No. The idols have not done this. They're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What do those, those who trust in them become what? You make all the other true but funny statements, right? They become dumb, they become, but what's the point here? They become motionless. They don't speak praise. They don't speak gratitude. They don't because they have nothing to be grateful to the idol for. And they become as silent as the idols made out of silver. By contrast, you, verse 19, O house of Israel, do what? Bless the Lord. Who should bless the Lord? All God's children, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, house of Levi, you who fear the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Grounding us back in the covenant. Bless the Lord. You know why you, people of God, should be praisers of God? Because you're people of God. That's what that whole thing is about. You should be a praiser of God because you are a person of God. If you were a person of an idol, you'd have no reason to praise. Your idols didn't do anything. So you don't need to praise your idols. You'll become like them. But God, God, who didn't have to do any of this, made a covenant because he wanted to. Kept that covenant because he's, because he's God and he could do nothing else. Once he made it, and the way that he made it, the self-maledactory oath, if I break this covenant, I will stop being God. Well, he's going to keep that covenant. Well, what does that mean for me? It means all these things are occasions of covenantal gratitude. But it also means because he's God, he's going to keep this covenant. I have this straight line. And now I'm back to the straight line. Why am I thankful? Because God is taking me on a path home. Why? Because he wanted to. <laughs> because for his glory, he made a decision to save people. I hedge on the decision because God doesn't... God doesn't do anything within the constraints of time. Decisions suggest that there was a time where God was not going to save and then a time where God decided he would save. No, no, no. God has eternally purposed to save. There was no time ever. There was no time when God was not going to save you. Why? <laughs> yeah, that's what the psalmist says. <laughs> the Lord does what he pleases. Why? Why did he please to do this? I don't know, but you've got to be pretty thankful for that, right? <laughs> That's a pretty good cause for gratitude. Psalms of Remembrance. Any questions about those? Um, it really struck me when you talked about worshiping idols become silent. And I was wondering, like, in looking at our own lives, we notice we are particularly silent and unable, just the pattern of not being grateful and thankful. Do you think that that reflects idolatry? Could it? We don't have much trouble in life being enthusiastic about what's really important to us. Sports, movies, celebrities, jokes, friends, games, good meals. 
we seem to have the ability to be enthusiastic about what matters a lot to us. And so when we are not very enthusiastic about gratitude and praise toward God, I think, yes, it does suggest that there are things in our life that are more important to us than God. And I think it's a, I think there's a cyclical nature to this. If you're not praising and grateful to God privately, you're not going to be a great public worshiper. And if you're not a great public worshiper participating in the service, receiving the grace from God that comes only through corporate worship, God gives us grace in tons of ways. But there is a kind of grace that only comes through corporate worship. Don't blame me. Blame God. And if you're not availing yourself of that grace, you're missing some of the fuel that you need to praise God during the week, privately and individually. So I think, yes, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity there for a virtuous cycle, and there's also an opportunity for our idols to be exposed. Praise is enthusiasm toward God. Genuine enthusiasm, not fabricated, not, but genuine enthusiasm toward God. That's what praise is. And so when I struggle to praise, it's a really interesting question. Of why, why am I not plussed about God right now? And sometimes you say, because this horrible thing is happening in my life. Okay, bring that to God. I'm not saying enthusiasm means jump up and down with a smile, but it means real engagement. Sorry, were you saying something? That it certainly can be, yeah, or a feeling of obligation. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Third category: kingship psalms or royal psalms. Today's sermon is on Psalm two, which is a kingship psalm. Kingship psalms are (laughs) reflect on kingship. (laughs) They reflect on the state of the king. They praise, magnify, give thanks for the king. They pray for the king's success and for the righteous performance of the king's duties. And we read these psalms through two lenses. The first lens you read it through is David and the line of Davidic kings. Because Israel actually had a king. And for a long time his name was David. And then it was David's son Solomon. And then it was chaos. (laughs) But they had lots of kings. And so it makes sense that a, especially in a theocracy, a state of government established by God with God's rules, that people would think and speak and pray and expect highly of their king, whom God had appointed. And so you look at this through the lens of David, and yes, some of these psalms would have been used at the coronation of, of Israel's kings uh, as as invocations or benediction to pray God's blessing on a king of Israel. They would have been used in royal ceremonies. So there's definitely that aspect of it. But as we will see in Psalm 2 this morning, and remembering back a couple weeks to Psalm 1, what happens if you use any one of these royal psalms about the king of righteousness who leads his people faithfully and honors God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. What happens if you apply those psalms as a litmus test to any of Israel's kings? 
No good. No good at all. At one of my commentaries this week, I didn't quote it in the sermon, but one of the commentaries said, yeah, I think it really says something that、uh, Israel's greatest and most faithful king was involved in a sex scandal and a murderous cover-up. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's David. <laughs> that's right. right? This, you, you can't get there from here. So that's the other layer of the royal psalms, is that they are looking forward To a king who does fulfill these things. That they are longing to be led by this king. Everybody, you know, there's the distinction in the world today that's a big deal between、uh, leaders and followers, and, and, you know, we reject the notion that one's better than the other. A good follower is better than a bad leader. But no matter how strong a quote unquote leader God wired you to be, everyone loves to be led by a great leader. Everyone. The strongest leaders love to be led by great leaders. Great leadership is beautiful, it is comforting, it strengthens the spine. Great leadership is, is, is home. And so, what they're doing is they're looking for the kind of leader that they'll have here when they're home. And they're saying, We want that one. We'd like for this one to be like that one. But this one seems to do a lot of whatever's right in his own eyes. This one seems to do evil, even more evil than his father before him, if you've ever read the books of kings. And so there's two kinds of kings there's the earthly king, who is the reflection. So look at Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is a royal king. Psalm, a kingship psalm. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy all their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to fight, you will aim their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So you see what that one did. It started with the king. Let's say Some great stuff about the king. We want the king. But then the more it talks about the king, it's like, well, the king is strengthened by God. The king is saved by God. The, the, the king is empowered by God. And then by the end of the psalm, you're like, yeah, so let's just praise God instead because God's better than the king. <laughs> right? That's kingship psalm, but a very realistic kingship song. It's aspirational for what we want a king to be and what the king can be by the power and steadfast love of God. And that's what all the kingship psalms are. They have this balance of those two things, they just have it in different ratios. So if you go to Psalm 93, you're going to see the ratio swing dramatically the other way. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. 
Can you apply that to an earthly king? And, oh, yeah, for, you know, sort of a little. But the Lord is robed in majesty. That's the king we're looking for. We're looking for a king who is a mirror image of the Lord. We're looking for a king who walks every step in faithfulness with him. We're looking for a king who, when he exercises power, is only exercising the power of God in justice and in holiness and his, in his rightness. We're looking for a king whose de- decrees are unchanging, whose decrees are trustworthy. We don't want a king who, who waffles and changes his mind. We want a king who is firmly established and whose throne is established. He's not threatened by outside attackers. There's no question about our long-term security. We want that king. And if you want that king, Where do you have to go? That kingdom. (laughs) Because that eternal kingdom is the only place where you're ever going to have that king. Now, you live in this kingdom, and you fix your eyes on that kingdom, and it can make a pretty big difference. A pretty big difference in how you live in this kingdom when your eyes are fixed on that one. And that's why they praise that kingdom. That's why these psalms are within the broad category of, of thanksgiving. There is something powerful and beneficial about life under the covenant life under Yahweh's kingship because you know it is secure even if writing this in the period of history when they're writing it they don't know how that's going to be they don't know how that's going to play out because the best chance they ever had in their mind was David and that didn't work out exactly the way they hoped it was really great for a while and didn't work out the way they hoped And so there's this entire Jewish messianic tension where what they are waiting for is the king who will be greater than David, the king who will be that king, the king that they look forward to in the Psalms. And that's why they lay down palm branches as the king marches into Jerusalem. And that's why they call out Hosanna, because they have been looking for that king for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then when that king does what Jesus does. That's why they say, "Ah, we'll take Barabbas. We'll keep looking for the next king. This isn't the king we want. We wanted a bigger king, more land. 